Well, we are in the book of Amos. Uh, if you're new to Lynchburg City Church, we, uh, we like verse-by-verse expository preaching. And I realize that some of you may be a little unfamiliar with this book. Honestly, one of the reasons I picked this, this book is because I've never heard a sermon from Amos. I've, I know nothing, uh, up until a week ago, I knew nothing about the book of Amos, other than it's a minor prophet. It's infrequently ever addressed or even spoken about within the church today. So I thought, well, that's a good reason why we should talk about it. It's in there for a reason, so let's unpack this. That being said, I, I think it's important, and I think it will be helpful if I, if I give some background information. I want to touch on some key historical events that have ultimately led up to Amos giving this message around 760 B.C. But what we see early on is, early on in the ninth century, two different Assyrian kings campaigned outside of their borders in order to seize control of strategic trade routes. Well, this didn't go over with a lot of the people uh, well in the region. These Assyrian kings coming in, waging these campaigns outside their borders to take control and seize these strategic trade routes. So a coalition was formed, uh, an anti-Assyrian coalition in order to oppose Assyrian aggression within the region. And there was three principal characters, uh, figures that played into this, uh, into this coalition. And there was a guy named Erhulini of Hamath, Erhulini of Hamath, Hadadadzer of Damascus, and Ahab of Israel. These were the, really the three major players within this anti-Assyrian coalition in order to oppose their aggression within the region. Now, it, it should be said that to the north of Israel was the nation of the Arameans, and, and they were a loose conglomeration of these city-states. So the city of Hamath and the city of Damascus, they have their own kings, and yet they're, they're part of the Aramean nation. And so... Erhulini of Hamath, Hadadadzer of Damascus, and Ahab of Israel are in this alliance to oppose the Assyrians, and they engage in several different military campaigns. And the fourth and final one took place around 845 B.C. Now, 845 B.C., Hadadadzer, the king of Damascus, who really was the prominent leader in this coalition, he dies. Now, he either dies during the battle or shortly after the battle, and after he dies... A man named Hazael becomes the king of Damascus. Hazael becomes the king, and for some reason, unknown to us, the anti-Assyrian coalition that had been formed dissolves. It's no more. And the other strange thing is, shortly after it dissolves, Hazael, the new king of Damascus, turns his attention on Israel and begins engaging them in warfare. Well, According to 2 Kings chapter 8, 25 to 29, when Hazael attacked Israel, their king was wounded. King Jehoram was, was wounded, and, and the army of Israel was left under the control of Jehu. And so Jehu's in this very difficult position to be in right now. His king's been mortally wounded. The alliance they had against Assyria has just completely collapsed, and now one of the other nations in the alliance is attacking them, and what am I supposed to do? There's an ancient proverb. You may have heard it. It says, the enemy of my enemy is my... Okay, it's about 
Twelve of you know that. The enemy of my enemy is my friend. And so Jehu makes the decision to pay homage to Shalmaneser III, the Assyrian king. And then, and then, under the instructions from the Lord's prophet, and with Shalmaneser's blessing, he decides to make a very opportune decision. He kills King Jehoram of Israel, as well as King Ahaziah of Judah, and seizes the throne for himself. And from that point forward, the following kings of the Jehu dynasty would be and remain pro-Assyrian. Well, you think that decision would result in very, very beneficial things for Israel, and it doesn't so much work out, perhaps the way I imagine Jehu hoped it would work out. Assyria comes against the king of Damascus, the Arameans. He comes against Hazael, wages a series of campaigns against them in 840 B.C. and 837 B.C. And each time, Hazael and the Arameans, the king of Damascus, is able to defend and fight off the Assyrians. Battle after battle, and they're able to hold their ground. The Assyrians have to retreat like a dog with its tail between its legs. Well, now with the Assyrians out of the picture, Hazael, the king of Damascus, has no one left to really occupy his time or attention. And so he turns the strength of Damascus and the Arameans south toward Israel. They're the, the big kid on the block now, and, and, and they turn Israel, as well as other smaller nations, into a vassal state. For the next 30-plus years, Israel is living under the thumb of the king of Damascus. That is, until 2 Kings chapter 13, verse 4 and 5. In 2 Kings chapter 13, verse 4 and 5, Jehoaz prays that God would deliver Israel. That God would deliver Israel from the Aramaeans, from the king of Damascus. And God answers his prayer, and he uses the Assyrians to answer his prayer. In 802 B.C., Adad-Narari III crushes Damascus, and he places Ben-Hadad II, Hazael's son, now the, the king of Damascus, under a very oppressive tax. And this is great news for Israel. Ben-Hadad II, now having been defeated in 802 B.C. by the Assyrians, and now under this oppressive tax, is kind of powerless. See, it takes money to run armies. And it takes money to keep the armies up and running. And now with paying whatever excess they have to the king, excuse me, to the king of Assyria, they don't have the ability to continue holding their thumb over Israel. And so Israel at 802 BC really enters into this golden age. Things are really good. For the next 40 years, there's this economic boom. Times are good. Money is flowing. It's prosperity. From, from 802 B.C. to 760 B.C., when Amos is writing this, it's this golden age. Life is really, really, really good. Not only that, there's an increase in religious activities. And yet... And yet, God's not happy. 
You say, how is God not happy? There's an increase in religious activities. Certainly he would be happy. But the problem is, is that's all it is. Religious activities. You know, right? The people who claim to be Christians, and yet when you find out, like, oh, you're a Christian, you're like, oh, oh, I had no idea. Because how you live your life beyond that, like, 90-minute block when you go to a service one day a week completely contradicts everything that you say. In a very Titus 1.16 way, they profess to know God, but they deny God by their actions. See, see God's... Um, He's furious with them. He's not happy. And he sends Amos in 760 B.C. to come deliver his message to them. So Amos, who's this guy? Well, his name comes from a root verb which means load or to lift a load. The, the, the noun may, be, may mean burden or burden bearer. So Amos's name could mean Load or one that lifts a load or burden or burden bearer. One who carries a burden. And we begin in verse 1. It says, the words of Amos, who was among the shepherds of Tekoa. The words of Amos, who was among the shepherds of Tekoa. And so right away we learn that he is a shepherd. And yet, your Bible might have a little footnote there, which also may refer to as a breeder of sheep. The word that's used for shepherd here, and I don't mean like our English word, because that word appears lots of times in the Bible, but the, the specific word in the original language that's used for shepherd here is only used in one other place. And it's in 2 Kings chapter 3, verse 4, when it speaks of the king of Moab as a shepherd. And when you read that story, it becomes clear like the king of Moab is not just some ordinary run-of-the-mill shepherd because the king of Moab, he supplies a 100,000 lambs and the wool of a 100,000 rams to the king of Israel. Not just some ordinary shepherd. And this word is being used here to describe Amos. I think rather how we should understand Amos and who he was is Amos is not some like blue-collar shepherd. Not that there's anything wrong with that. But rather he is... Probably a successful business guy who has benefited from this golden age, this economic boom of peace and prosperity that Israel has experienced since 802 BC when the Assyrians defeated the Arameans. So this is him. I think it's interesting because here's this guy. He's a businessman. And God is using him. Like he's not an army chaplain. He's not a pastor. He's not an elder or whatever. Like, just a business guy living in this city called Tekoa, which apparently was really good for living there if you're going to breed sheep and do stuff with sheep. So it's great. But he uses this guy, this guy Amos. He's like, Amos, I want you to go, and I want you to give a message. I want you to give a message for me. The words of Amos, who was among the shepherds of Tekoa, which he saw concerning Israel. Now that phrase, concerning Israel, is one that I want to hover over for a moment. It deserves careful observation. Concerning Israel. Concerning Israel. See, the subject matter is now introduced. The original audience here is introduced. Amos' words here... They're about Israel. They're, as we'll see, 
next week, they're also about and against Israel. But he addresses them as Israel. Not you breakaway northern rebels, but Israel. And yet, the people of Israel, they didn't always feel that way. In fact, when you look at 1 Kings chapter 12, 16 to 17, it's clear that oftentimes the people viewed themselves as, well, maybe not loved by God, maybe kind of far away from God, maybe that he was distant, maybe that they weren't his covenant people. After all, they, they broke away. They're, they're the rebels. And, and maybe some of you feel that way too. But before I even get to the application, let, let me explain. You go back to 930 B.C. There's been a transition of power within Israel. You guys know King Solomon, David, Solomon? Okay, so Solomon's king, he hears and gets word that God apparently has a plan that he's going to take his kingdom and split it in two and give half to a guy named Jeroboam. A guy that apparently works somewhere within his administration. He finds this out. He's not exactly thrilled about that. So... Tries to have Jeroboam killed. Well, Jeroboam flees to exile in Egypt. And he stays there until he hears that Solomon's died. Well, when Solomon dies, he comes back. King Rehoboam, Solomon's son, has been become the king. And he comes, Jeroboam, he's kind of like a, a man of the people. And he comes to King Rehoboam and he says, King Rehoboam, may you live forever. And we will gladly serve you as king for all the days of our lives, but we have but one request, and that is that you lighten the load of your people, Rehoboam. So Rehoboam, he goes to the wise men that had given his father advice, and he said, what do you think about Jeroboam's suggestion? And they said, well, Rehoboam, your father was quite hard on the people. I, I don't think it's an un... An unrealistic request for him to say this. Take his advice. Lighten the load of the people. But then Rehoboam decides to get a second opinion. He consults with his young friends. And young friends sometimes, they don't give the best advice. Sometimes young friends are foolish. And so his young friends say, no, 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 no. They say, Rehoboam. You're the new king. You're the one calling the shots. You're the shot caller. You don't need to abide by Jeroboam's request. You're king. No one else. So you know what? You tell them this. You tell them that your little finger is thicker than your father's thigh. And where your father used chains and whips on the people, you'll use scorpions. Okay, he goes, he gives that message, the kingdom split in two, north and south. The ten tribes make up the northern kingdom of Israel. Israel rallies behind Jeroboam, just as the prophecy had said. Rehoboam does remain king and retains power of the two southern tribes, which is affectionately known as Judah. So when he says here, when Amos addresses Israel as Israel, not the, the northern fraction, the split off part, the split off nation, not the rebels, not those people that had a, a past, but concerning Israel, especially in light of 1 Kings chapter 12, 16 to 17, I, I imagine some of them were 
maybe taken back for a moment. Israel. Yeah, Israel. God's covenant people. Yeah, God's covenant people. But what about our past? What about the mistakes that we've made? What about the fact that there's basically a civil war and the country broke apart and we rallied behind Jeroboam? Yeah, I'm talking about you, Israel. I think that's really good news for some of us in here. Who maybe this last week or this last month have rebelled, have given into temptation, have been complete idiots. To know that if you are in Christ Jesus, you're still his people. To know that. Because I know what it's like. I know what that feels like, right? When you give in to temptation or you're just, just an idiot. And you feel like, oh, I can't read my Bible today, right? I can't come to service today, right? I can't come to small group. I can't pray because it feels like that sin, that that stuff that has taken place in your life that you've done is like this million-mile barrier between you and God, and there's no way that he's going to want to have anything to do with you. And yet Paul says that nothing separates us from God's love. Neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation can separate us from the love of God through Christ Jesus our Lord. Yes, concerning Israel. Who else do you think I'm talking about? I'm talking about you. It doesn't mean that, okay, it doesn't mean that they don't have to repent, they just keep on sinning, right? You know, Paul also addresses that in Romans 6. Should we continue to sin so that grace may abound? No, of course not. No, they need to repent, and they need to stop sinning. But they need to remember that God still loves them. They're still His people. And nothing's going to change that. Not even their failures and their mess-ups and their screw-ups. I think there's at least one person that needs right now to be reminded of that truth. Concerning Israel. Sure, you got the right guy? Yeah. I'm talking to you, my covenant people. In the days of Uzziah, king of Judah, and in the days of Jeroboam, now this isn't the Jeroboam that I just paraphrased the entire story. This would have been Jeroboam II, his grandson. The son of Joash, king of Israel, two years before the earthquake. He he references an earthquake here, which seems kind of strange, I, I suppose. But take, for ex- ex- example, if, if I referenced, I don't know, this right here. I don't need to give a detail. You probably all know this is a guitar right here. And that Josh was just playing it earlier on. He references this earthquake. It needs no explanation that everyone would have been familiar with this event. In fact, Zechariah chapter 14 verse 5, he also references this event. And so with the reference of the earthquake and the time that Zechariah writes, as well as the time that King Uzziah and King Jeroboam II reigned, we can place the date of this writing sometime around 760 BC, which is why I said Israel's been in this golden age, this economic boom of peace, of prosperity for the last 40 years. Like things are going really, really, really well and yet not so much. That even despite like the religious activity, it was just a joke. It's just a joke. And God is 
not happy. Verse 2. And he said, the Lord roars from Zion. And he utters his voice from Jerusalem. He roars from Zion. Uh, the word roar here, it can, it can be used either to describe the roar of a lion or, or the roar of an approaching storm. The imagery here that he's using is to describe a very big and very powerful God who Israel, you better listen up right here and right now. That you better pay attention right here and right now. Because the one who is speaking is not any ordinary person. The one whose message I am delivering to you, he roars from Zion. He utters his voice from Jerusalem. I mean, you're seeing this powerful imagery here. I don't know if you've ever experienced the roar of a lion up close or personal. I haven't, so I won't use that illustration. But I will use, thank goodness, right? But I will use, like, for example, like for thunder. And, and, you know, maybe you're sitting in your living room, right? And, and it sounds like the thunder's right outside. It cracks, and it sounds like it's it's literally 15 feet away, maybe. And, and your expression is, oh, oh, right? Like, you're like, whoa, that was close. Whoa, that was, that was really close. That was really powerful. That's the whole point here. That's why Amos is using this imagery. See, the one, the one whose message that Amos is delivering here is not an ordinary person. It's the God of the universe. And when he speaks, when he utters his voice, it's powerful. He utters his voice from Jerusalem. The pastures of the shepherds, they mourn. And the top of Carmel withers. There is a, there is a, a figurative speech that's being used here in which Amos is using the opposite to convey the whole idea. He's using the opposite in order to convey the whole idea in the sense that if the imagery he is borrowing from, say, is thunder, well, you would express, you would expect rains to come with that, and yet that's not what's happening. In fact, the opposite is, is happening here. The, the pastures of the shepherds, even the tops of mountains, the tops of Mount Carmel, they're, they're experiencing this drought. There's devastation that is affecting really all of the people. And then, verse 3, he says, Thus says the Lord, For three transgressions of Damascus, and for four, I will not revoke the punishment. They say, well, Amos, is it three or is it four? Just tell us what you're saying. Tell us what you're thinking. We can't read your mind. Should we understand it to be three? Should we understand it to be four? Is this literal? Is this symbolic? And I think as we'll see, especially by the repetitive nature of the following verses, that this is to be taken and understood as symbolically, where, as one commentator notes, Three probably represents fullness. And four most likely represents an overflow. It's not, all right, Damascus, you've done this one, two, three things. Actually, you've done exactly four things. Rather, it's it's again and again and again and again, Damascus. It's not just this one thing. It's all of these things, and they're piling up one after another. And people say, but isn't God patient? 
Right? He's, he's patient. He is, but his patience comes to an end at some point. And it has for Damascus. And he's furious with them. For three transgressions of Damascus and for four, I, I will not revoke the punishment because they have threshed Gilead. This little clan of Israel, they've been utterly abused. They've been brutalized. We'll see more on that in a moment. With the threshing sledges of iron, so I will send a fire upon the house of Hazael. You remember the former king of Damascus? And it shall devour the strongholds of Ben-Hadad, Hazael's son. I will break the gate bars of Damascus, the the bar that that locks the gate in place. I'm going to snap that like a twig. You're not going to be able to defend your strongholds. The enemies are going to come in and just devour you. I'm going to cut off the inhabitants from the valley of Avin and him who holds the scepter from Beth Eden and the people of Syria shall go into exile and decur, says the Lord. The place and origin of the Arameans, Kerr, he says, they're going to be taken back there. And history will reveal to us that the Assyrians will come and will take them all into captivity and take them back into Kerr. Isn't God patient when we're sinning, when we're doing things we shouldn't be doing? Oh, he is. But his patience comes to an end at some point. Verse 6, he pronounces his next oracle. He says this, Thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of Gaza and for four. Remember, three representing the fullness, four, the overflow. It's not like, oh, they just have three strikes against them. Like, there's a lot of strikes against them. For three transgressions of Gaza and for four, I will not revoke the punishment because they carried into exile a whole people to deliver them up to Edom. So I will send a fire upon the wall of Gaza and it shall devour her strongholds. I will cut off the inhabitants from Ashdod and him who holds the scepter from Ashkelon and I will turn my hand, I will literally turn my hand, turn my power against Ekron and and the remnants of the Philistines shall perish, says the Lord. So he introduces Gaza. And, And what's their specific sin? Their specific sin is that they're taking whole communities. The word whole can also refer to and mean peaceful as well. But they're, they're taking these communities of people, probably men, women, and children, and they're selling them to Edom. Just taking them and, and selling them. And, and we don't know who they were selling. It very well may have been Israelites. We don't know that. But that's the specific sin that Amos brings up here, that Amos indicts them on behalf. They're taking people and they're just mistreating them. They're just mistreating these people. God's not happy with that when we mistreat people. Verse 9, he says, Thus says the Lord, For three transgressions of Tyre and for four, I will not revoke the punishment because they delivered up a whole people to Edom and did not... They did not remember the covenant of brotherhood. So I will send a fire upon the wall of Tyre, and it shall devour her strongholds. Tyre was the the strongest of the Phoenician cities in the mid-8th century. 
Lots of wealth, lots of influence, a vast trading empire. When you look at Ezekiel 26 to 28, and one of the things they traded were slaves. And the sin that they're indicted for is that they sold whole communities of captives to Edom. Much, much like Gaza. They sold whole communities captive. But he doesn't just end there. He says, they did not remember the covenant of brotherhood. The phrase, the covenant of brotherhood, it probably is referring between Israel and Tyre. The Israel and Tyre probably had some type of agreement, some type of understanding, some type of peace accord. And Tyre disregards it. Tyre stabs them in the back and then takes them, men, women, and children, and they sell them into slavery. God has a very low tolerance for those who don't keep their word, for those who go back on their word, for those who break promises, for those who break treaties. He has a very, very low tolerance, especially when you break your word, you break your promise, you break an agreement in order to take advantage of the person that you broke it with. He's furious right now. He is not happy. And Tyre is going to feel his wrath. We know that history tells us the Assyrians actually subdued Tyre several times, forced them to pay tribute, but perhaps the real weight of their punishment and God's judgment was when Alexander the Great conquered this little tiny island fortress after a seventh, after a seven month siege and then sold 30,000 of their inhabitants into slavery. Isn't God patient with me? I know right now I'm doing things I should not be doing. He's patient. It's true, he is. But his patience is going to come to an end at some point. And so we continue the very next oracle. It says this, verse 11, Thus says the Lord, For three transgressions of Edom and for four, I will not revoke the punishment because... Because he pursued his brother with the sword and cast off all pity and his anger, his, his anger, the Edomites were very angry. His anger tore perpetually and he kept his wrath forever. So I will send a fire upon to man and it shall devour the strongholds of Basra. You may remember Isaac has two sons. Jacob and Esau. Jacob would be the father of Israel. Esau would be the father of the Edomites. The Edomites, Edom, their ancestral relatives. The Edomites are their cousins. And what does he say here? Why are they being indicted? Because he pursued his brother with the sword. He, he pursued, like, with intent to kill, with the sword. But that's his family. Their ancestral relatives, doesn't matter. He, he pursued with the intent to kill Israel with the sword. He didn't treat Israel how they should have treated Israel. There was no brotherly love. There was no compassion. And his anger tore perpetually. Anger will do that. Anger will, will, will do that. It, Maybe you've known people or you've seen people and you've witnessed and they can't get their anger under control and then they just, it just 
takes control of them. And they make one bad decision after another bad decision after another bad decision. And they're just so angry. They're like, they're like Edom. And it just eats away and it burns like a fire perpetually. And, and there's no pity where there should be pity. There's no compassion where there should be compassion. There's no brotherly love where there should be brotherly love. After all, Edom and Israel, they're ancestral relatives. And yet they pursue their brother, Israel, to kill them with the sword. Thus says the Lord, verse 13, for three transgressions of the Ammonites and for four, I will not revoke the punishment because they have, they've ripped open pregnant women in Gilead that they might enlarge their border so I will kindle a fire in the wall of Rabbah, and it shall devour her strongholds with shouting on the day of battle, with the temptest in the day of the whirlwind, and their king shall go into exile, he and his princes together, says the Lord. Gilead, once again, you may remember in verse 3, and I said I bring Gilead up once again, this little clan, the northern border of Israel, they're being abused, not just by the king of Damascus and the Arameans, but by the Ammonites. And, and this is just one example that God gives through his messenger Amos. They are going and taking their women and cutting their bellies open and pulling out their, their babies, forced abortions. They're brutalizing them. This is, this is one example that he gives. See, when I say that God is furious, maybe that doesn't convey, like, the right idea. Like, God is furious with them, with his evil and this wickedness that have been taking place. And these are just the examples that they're mentioning. It's not like, oh, you did this one thing. Like, there's a lot of things. The Gileadites have been very at the center of this conversation. They've been brutalized and mistreated by multiple nations. Isn't God patient? Yes, but his patience comes to an end at some point, and then his judgment shows up. And then at that point, it's too late to beg for mercy. Chapter 2, verse 1. Thus says the Lord, For three transgressions of Moab and for four, I will not revoke the punishment, because he burned to lime the bones of the king of Edom. So I will send a fire upon Moab, and it shall devour the strongholds of Kerioth and Moab. Moab shall die amid uproar, amid shouting and the sound of the trumpet, and I will cut off the ruler from its midst and will kill all its princes with him, says the Lord. Some of you may remember when we went through our Ruth series, Ruth and Naomi. Remember, Ruth's from where? She's from Moab. But the, the Moabites are not immune from God's judgment. Uh, for what it's worth, Ruth lived at least, at least three, if not four hundred years prior to this. But it's interesting. Note this. Note the Moabites' indictment here. The Moabites' indictment is not, is not mistreatment of Israel. The Moabites' indictment here is mistreatment of an Edomite king. Like, 
Who cares about an Edomite king? They, and they burned his body to essentially nothing. Who cares? God cares! He does! And he's furious with these people and their wickedness and their sin. He's disgusted by it. He is! And some of us, what do we do? We just make excuses for it. You say, how dare he raise his voice at me? I'm not, I didn't name you. If you feel that way, maybe that's the Holy Spirit right now tugging on you. God's furious. He's a patient God, but his patience comes to an end. God does not like the mistreatment of people by other people. Observation here. This is not just crimes against Israel. It's also crimes against non-Israelites. And oftentimes, I hear conversations. It's like, who cares? Right? A bomb goes off in some Islamic city. You know, it's ISIS and they kill a bunch of other Muslims. We're like, ah, who cares? God cares! And we should too, because if those people die in their sins and they don't know Jesus, they're going to hell. That should bother us. And for so many of us, we're like, eh, well, whatever, they're just Muslims. Like, what's up with that? So the God of Amos, he cares about the mistreatment of people, not just his own covenant people. He does not like it when we mistreat other people. Whether it's his own people, or whether it's just burning the body of some random king of Edom. Who cares? He does. And he is furious right now. God does not tolerate the mistreatment of people. You see, the God of Amos, the God of Amos, he's not just some national deity. So the God of Amos, he's, he's not limited by his power to, to some geographical boundary. Like, okay, he's, he's the God of this little section right here, and then, but if you go past that into, into the other area, well, he's not the God anymore. Well, that's just ridiculous. See, see, the God of Amos, the God of Amos rules over Judah. The God of Amos rules over Israel. The God of Amos rules over Aram. The God of Amos rules over Philistia and Tyre and Edom and Ammon and Moab and the United States and Great Britain and every other country of the world. And the God of Amos has zero tolerance for mistreatment of other people. Zero tolerance. You say, oh, but Joe, come on, you gotta be pro-American. You're an army officer after all. I got it. Pro-American. Jeremiah says, seek the welfare of the city you live in. You live in Lynchburg, you should want and seek and pray for the good of Lynchburg or whatever other city, whatever other country you live in. That's true, right? And he writes that at a time when they're in Babylonian exile. You know, Galatians 6.10, right? Do good to everyone, especially to those who are of the household of faith, right? Especially to other Christians. I'm not denying that. But I'm saying too many of us, honestly, we've got, we need to change how we think. We should care when people are mistreated, regardless of where their citizenship is. We should care how people are, how they're mistreated, regardless of whether or not they're covenant people of God. Like, we should especially care, because if they're not Christians and they die, they go to hell. 
And the only reason that some of you in here are not going to hell right now is because of God's amazing, ridiculously awesome love. You didn't do jack to get that. We step back and we, we observe this, and people say, well, we should love, right? We want to be all about love. We want to love like God loves, yeah, and we want to hate like God hates too. We should hate the things that God hates, and God absolutely hates the mistreatment of other people, regardless of who they are. That's the God of Amos here. And we look back, and I'm sure some of these other nations thought, like many of us, oh, well, I haven't experienced any consequences, right? I'll just keep having sex with my girlfriend, right? She doesn't get pregnant, nothing happens. Or I'll keep looking at pictures on the computer I shouldn't be looking at. I'm going to keep lying, I'm going to keep stealing, I'm going to keep doing these things, whatever. I haven't gotten caught, I've, I've seemingly got away with it. Let me just remind you, just because you haven't been caught, just because you haven't experienced consequences, does not mean that you've gotten away with it. I'm sure some of these nations thought, oh yeah, we're, we're, we're clear, we're in the, we're in the free, right? And God's sitting there, he's like, I see that. I see you mistreating them. 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 Okay, that's enough. We're done. And he's very upset. And yet, especially for some of us, and maybe we are, too close and too like some of these people that are being indicted that we would rather actually be to, to know that for those of us who are in Christ, for those of us who've placed our faith in Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, as Lord and Savior, there's good news, right? He comes on the scene, he's saying, hey, I'm talking to you, Israel. And they're like, wait, wait, us? For, for those of us who, who are in Christ to know that he still loves you. He still loves you. He's not happy. He's not happy. You need to repent. You need to stop doing some of the things you're doing, but he loves you. You, you might feel like he's a million miles away, but he's not. He's not. He's here with us right now. And that's really good news. My prayer is that we are more alike people like Amos that our view of God is like how Amos views God God over all people God who cares about all people we need to be like that, we need to think like that and if we don't we need to repent so I'd like the band to come and I'd like to just pray for us for a second God, we love you. I thank you. I thank you for every aspect of who you are. I thank you that you're a God of justice, especially for these people who, who have been, honestly, a lot of these people have been the victims of these wickedness of other nations that, that even in our lives when it seems like, God, are you even noticing what's going on? To know that you are. To know that you are a God of justice. To know that the wickedness will be punished. 
If not in this life, then in the life to come. So God, I pray that we would not forget the story and that we would see it come alive as it, as it is. It's not just some ordinary person who's bringing this message. It's you, the one who roars from Zion, from Jerusalem. That you care. You care about atrocities. You care about people. And so should we. Amen.